So, Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, that by your Spirit, you would quicken our hearts, our understanding, and help us to hear your voice in your word this morning. Jesus, would you encounter us with your word this morning? We don't want to come here to play church or to hear a nice message or to do it. We want to come here to encounter you. We want you to take hold of our hearts and to plant seeds of eternity that will never, ever leave us and that will produce fruit for the rest of our lives. I'm asking that you would do that this morning. And if you want the Lord to do that, say amen. Amen. All right, have a seat. Thank you so much. So Brandon mentioned it in his opening, but I want to talk about spiritual hunger this morning, hunger for God, and I titled the message, A Portrait of Spiritual Hunger, Isaiah 44, verse 3, is the verse I want to start with, Isaiah chapter 44, and verse 3. says this, for I will pour water on the thirsty land. Margin of my Bible, maybe yours is translated this way. Actually, the Hebrew just says, I'll pour water on the thirsty. So him who is thirsty, I'll pour water on, the Lord says, and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. One of the ways of God and the way that he deals with his people and the way that he brings his purposes into the earth and into our lives individually, I believe, one of the main ways that he does that is by planting in us his desires And by us partnering with him and cultivating those desires, and then those desires come to fruition. He calls for our partnership. And so as we walk with him, he puts in us his desires. He says that in Scripture in multiple places. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 is a favorite one of mine. I lean on it all the time. Paul says, not just when I was with you, but even when I'm apart from you, even more now you're obedient to what I'm telling you to do. And he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, that sounds intimidating, but you got to go to the next verse. Because it is God who is working in you to produce both the desire and the power to do his will. So he's planting his desires in us, and then he gives us the power to actually follow through and to do his will. I love that winning. That's a winning combination. That's a lot different than the performance mentality of if I just pray enough, and if I just work enough, and if I just memorize enough scripture, then God's going to do something. No, you're going about it the wrong way. Not that any of those things are wrong, but the way that you have to live the Christian life is supernaturally by the grace that God gives. Here's the genius of the plan in the New Testament. We can do nothing apart from him. 
Absolutely nothing that has eternity in it. So it, the sooner we settle that, the better off we are. I can do absolutely nothing that has eternity in it apart from him. But not apart from him. He's connected to me. So I don't have the power to do his will apart from him. I don't have the power to desire what he wants me to do apart from him. But he gives me those things and he works in me what is pleasing to him. Hebrews 13 says, if you want to look at verse 20 and 21, lots of powerful verses come to mind. He's working in us the thing that's pleasing to him. So God is working inside of us to do what he wants to do as we yield to him. That's a beautiful way to live. That's so better than the performance. How many have ever been in the performance cycle? You're on the hamster wheel of Christianity. If you just do enough and you're like, you're spinning plates and you've got all these plates on the sticks and you're trying to keep them all going. Anybody ever been there? You're like, I can't keep doing this. This And so then you go, you just want to quit everything. The problem is we need to lean more into his grace and let him work in us. See, it starts him working in us. It starts by him putting his desires inside of us. That's the beginning point of his purposes coming to fruition inside of our lives. So this verse in Isaiah 44, verse 3, has a pretty great history in revival history, which I love very much. So in the 1940s, in the Hebrides Islands, which are part of Scotland, if you didn't know, Not a ton of people there, but the spiritual atmosphere on the islands there was becoming very dark and worldly, and there were two sisters, two elderly sisters on that island. One was blind. They would get together and pray. They began to be grieved at the condition on their island, and they began to pray, and they began to pray, Isaiah 44, 3. Lord, you're going to pour water on the thirsty one. And God, we're thirsty. You have to come and do something here. God planted a desire in the hearts of two elderly sisters, one being blind. And they began to pray for months. They prayed and month after month, and then it got more and more desperate. They're like, God, You said you would pour out water on the dry ground. We're dry and parched and thirsty. We need your water. What's happening? You're not doing it. That's not okay. They kept praying that way. And they kept praying that way. Because the desire that was planted inside of them was from God. And his intention was to fulfill that desire as they cried out to him. And then the dam broke loose in the Spirit. And there was such an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on those islands in the Hebrides that God swept thousands of people that were rank sinners away from him, had nothing to do with him, just sweep them out of their bed at night and drew them in, and they would fall on the streets in the middle of the night and be crying out, God, I'm a sinner, save me, help me, God. God was inhabiting those islands because he put his desire in the hearts of two elderly sisters who began to give vent to it and cry out to him. And he swept through those islands for three straight years and totally revolutionized the culture on those islands. It's a powerful story. You should read it sometimes. It began with God planting his desire inside of somebody's heart and them partnering 
with his desire. I'm convinced from Scripture, and we'll look at some examples, some portraits of what spiritual hunger looks like. And I'm convinced from my own life that this is one of the key ways that God leads us into his purposes and into his will. He puts his desires inside of us. Almost every day of my life, this is a real thing. You can take it or leave it, whatever. I pray almost every day of my life, God, put inside of me your desires. Let them overrule and overpower my own desires and pursuits. Let them be the dominant desires inside of my heart. Make me want to do what you want me to do. And I found him faithful to answer. He does that. This is a miracle. He changes my desires. Whereas I wanted to go this way, and it was more of a selfish kind of ambition. And, and, and here's part of the process is that when you actually take those desires and you process through them, and we'll talk about how to do that in, in, in this message, when you process those desires with the Lord, He'll actually help to purify the impure motives. Because how many know that most of our motives are impure? Or, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say it that way. That many of our motives are impure, and most of our motives are mixed. So when you minister, you go to yourself, well, I don't want to get up there and I don't want to have any desire at all for people to applaud me or preach me. Okay, look, you can get it chasing your tail with that. Just go, God, you know what's in me. I just wanted to honor you rightly. Whatever's in me that's not right, would you purge that out? And he usually does that through the processes of life. And he goes, oh, no worries. I've got a path for you where we're going to get that stuff purged right out. <laughs> no, I didn't say it was going to be fun or convenient, but I've got a path for you, right? You want to get rid of those things. So he's got the way. But desires are so key. That's why guarding our desires are so, it's so important how you guard your desires and where you get your desires. If you get your desires from the culture, if you get your desires from um, the way you were brought up and whatever, you, you might be steering the wrong way. But when God plants his desires in you, this is the beauty of waiting on the Lord. This is the beauty of reading the scripture. You realize how precious this is. We are literally reading and breathing in God's desires. The more we breathe in his desires, the more straight we're going to walk in the way that he wants us to walk. It's beautiful and it's powerful. So I relinquish my, de my desires, Lord. And I ask you to put in your desires inside of me. George Mueller. I've got so many heroes of the faith that... They come to my mind. But George Mueller was in Bristol, England in the 1800s. He had a huge heart for orphans. There weren't government programs that took care of him then, really. Mueller, in his lifetime, he raised, and I mean he raised them. He, he, he built the houses. He got the food. He schooled them. He raised 10,000 orphans, and he never asked anybody for money one time. That's a miracle. They'd be sitting down for breakfast, and all these orphans are there, and he, he's thinking to himself, we don't even have food to eat. We don't have enough milk to drink. And he would sit down and give thanks for the food with the orphans. And many times, read his book called Answered Prayers, George Mueller, Answered Prayers, powerful stories. He'd go out to the mailbox and go, well, maybe there's something there. Go out there, paper sack of money, 5000 
pounds in it. That, that kind of stuff happened multiple times. God heard an answer because here's what he said. Here's what I do in all of my pursuits with ministry and with life. If I'm not sure what the Lord wants me to do, this is good now. You should, you should hear this. This is really powerful. This has helped me immeasurably in my life. When I'm trying to decide what the Lord wants me to do, I'll take 30 days. And every day during that 30 days, I'll take a period of time, not 10 hours, but I will take a period of time. Maybe it's 15 minutes each day, and I'll just get my heart quiet. And I pray, and I ask the Lord to remove from me my own desires and my own will and to replace those desires inside of me with his desires and his will and his purposes. And he said, after doing that for 30 days, I have found in decision makings that in decision making that I am always confident and have a, a, an assured sense of peace that the way that I'm going is the right way. Or it might change my way. And I go, no, that wasn't right. But that's how he got confidence in his guidance. Well, I listened to a guy like that. That's powerful. God, do something with my desires. Psalm 42. Look at a couple, a little picture of David's hunger. Psalm 42. And we're going to make our way to Daniel. Psalm 42. You're familiar with this. But I, I want you to feel it in your heart. The intensity and the depth of David's hunger for God. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You see, what he's thirsting for is, God, I need more of you in my life. There's a gnawing desire inside of me that is longing. I've got to have more of you. It's intense. I want to tell you that real hunger hurts. That's how you can tell if it's real or fake. Real hunger hurts. It gnaws at you inside of your belly. You can't just dismiss it and go, oh, whatever. It hurts. It burns. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where's your God? God, this is not okay. You, you get the picture with real spiritual desire for the Lord. It's not okay where I'm at right now. This is not okay. This is not okay. Now, you don't take it out on other people. This is, this is one of the mistakes that people that burn with a lot of desire get into is that they blame everybody else for the fact that they're hurting inside, and that's the wrong way to go. It's not their fault. You need to work it out with the Lord, but you know what he wants you to do? He doesn't want you to point the finger at everybody else and go, everybody else sucks. Nobody else wants God. It's only me. That's, that's pride working inside of you, and that's one of the things that the Lord wants to bring to the surface so he can cleanse you of it. Isn't this a beautiful, merciful process where we take the desires that burn in us and chafe us and make us uncomfortable? Spiritual desire and comfort are never compatible. I hate to tell you that. If you are bent on having a comfortable life, then you can't passionately follow God. 
Spiritual hunger always hurts because it's a longing. Real hunger is not a hunger for a snack. It's the fact that if you don't get a drink, you're going to die. And if you don't eat, you're going to die. It's a desire that is compelling and controlling. And it's good. But we take that before the Lord and let him process in that the thing that he wants to do in us. So this is not a guilt message of a beat down. You know, I could ask the question, where does your desire rank on the scale of do you pant after the Lord like that? And I think most of our answer would be sometimes. And it's okay to start there for sure. I want you to feel David's desire. Psalm 63, I'm going to read these verses. These, all of these you're familiar with. 63 verses 1 through 5. Oh, God. You are my God. I shall seek you earnestly, early, morning, noon, and night. I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. What? He's saying my whole being, my whole being cries out for you, God. I can't go on if I don't have more of you in my life and more of your purposes. Thus, I've seen you. Lord, I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've seen your power and your glory. Your loving kindness is better than life. There's nothing that compares to you. My lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. I lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. That's a burning hurting, longing, compelling, gnawing hunger for God. And that is the desire that God puts inside of us as his people. And if it's not there, there may be some reasons. One of those reasons is that we've stuffed our desire because we've been disappointed. I want to read you a quote from John Eldridge from his book, Sacred Romance, that has marked me through the years. Here's what Eldridge says. Desire often feels like an enemy because it wakes longings that cannot be fulfilled in the moment. Passion means to suffer. That is what many Christians are reluctant. That is why many Christians are reluctant to listen to their hearts. They know that their dullness is keeping them from feeling the pain. Many of us have chosen simply not to want so much. It's safer that way. It's also godless. I don't know about you, but I know in my own journey with the Lord, most of my season I've been edgy. <laughs> and you can probably tell that when I preach. Um, but I think that I'm beginning to get wisdom and to learn not to vent it towards you. You're not the problem. It's me. It's what the Lord wants to do in me. And having spiritual hunger is like being pregnant. It's not convenient. The baby can't come soon enough, you know. We, we had seven children. My wife had seven. No, but I was part of the process. But, but she's... She's, you know, she's pretty petite, and so when she's pregnant, she's pregnant. 
You can tell. She's big. So she would get asked on almost every single pregnancy. People started asking her about month six or seven. You haven't had that baby yet? Oh, I said, baby's okay. <laughs> Don't hit anybody. She said, if they say that to me one more time, because of course you want to have that baby. It's the same way with desires that the Lord has planted in us. Part of our problem is we get impatient with the process, and we believe because if we have a desire put inside of us, it should come now, or there's something wrong, or I'm going to be mad at everybody else, or I'm going to vent on everybody else, because the burning, longing, churning, hurting passion inside of my heart isn't fulfilled, so I'm going to project it on you. It's your fault. If you would pray, it would happen, and that's wrong. That's just wrong. What we need to do is process that with the Lord. Take it before him. It's like pregnancy. You're carrying the seed, the desire of God in your heart. And the wrong thing to do is to stuff it down and just to be dull and to live worldly and to feed yourself with fleshly things so that that spiritual desire doesn't gnaw at you so much. That's the wrong thing to do. The right thing to do is to let it burn and hurt and take it before the presence of the Lord and vent it before him. God, yes, you said you were going to pour out water on the dry ground. Where's the water? Oh, God, where's the water? I feel that in my soul all the time. I feel that when I read John 7 where he said, what a picture that was in John 7. The Feast of Tabernacles was the setting. And one of the rituals on the Feast of Tabernacles, and all scholars agree with this. We have historians who lived then who told us. They would go down, the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam with a pitcher, dip it in the pool, and all the people would follow. There would be this, this train of people. He would fill up that pitcher, and they would walk back to the temple, and they would pour out that water at the base of the altar. So seven-day feast. Every day they would do that. On the seventh day, they did it seven times. So here they are in Jerusalem. They're going down. Let's go to the pool of Siloam seven times. Fill up the pitcher. Come and pour it out at the base of the altar. And it was sort of a prayer saying, God, come and bring your rain, both natural and spiritual. Come and fulfill the promises that you've made to us. Come, Lord, and pour out the water. And Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast when they do it seven times. And he yells out with a loud voice, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink. And the one who believes in me, out of his belly will gush rivers. And the Greek word there is floods. And I'm like, God, I've seen trickles come out. I've seen little bats. But floods is a lot. This is what you say. What's the disconnect? 
Why is this not happening? Why is it that by and large, the Pentecostal charismatic church where we believe in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, why we don't gush water, there should be water up to the roof everywhere we go. We've got so many people. Why isn't that, Lord? Why isn't that? I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with it. I don't believe that's what you said you wanted. And so I grieve over that. And I get edgy over that, and I get hangry. My, my wife got me a shirt, black shirt. I almost wore it today. But black shirt, big white letters said hangry on it. <laughs> because when I shifted diets after my surgery, I definitely was hangry. Um, but, but I pretty much stay hangry spiritually, and I just have to, I have to make sure that I rein it in and I don't vent it on you because it's not your fault. I want that baby to be born. God, I want that baby to be born. And and you know what I want to do as part of this today? I want to recruit you to not stuff that desire anymore because you've been disappointed. The desires that God has placed inside of you for everything that he wants to do. The wrong thing to do is to dismiss those or to medicate. We medicate our desire, our spiritual hunger that gnaws at us. We medicate in all kinds of ways. We medicate it with entertainment. We medicate it with food. We medicate it with all kinds of things. And that's the wrong thing to do. If I could convince you to let that gnawing be part of your normal life and just don't vent it on somebody else, express it to the Lord. He wants it to be vented to him. This is why we pray. This is why we cry out. One of the things that we do, if you don't have air for your fire, it goes out. So you have to vent it to the Lord. It's okay. You know, your personality and mine are are different, no doubt. But I, I vent to the Lord, not in a way where I'm accusing him. I'm just like, God, it hurts. I don't want this anymore. What's wrong? I don't know where the disconnect is. What can I do? How can we do this thing? We have to be the people of God who are spirit-filled, where the living waters are actually coming out, and you're inhabiting in our midst, and you're healing the sick, and you're sweeping away all kinds of darkness and sin, and you're drawing in like a mighty magnet and like a sweeping wind, drawing sinners in. I get that we partner with all of that. But from what I read in the scripture, there are desires of God that exceed ours by a thousandfold. And personally, I'm not okay with that. Not okay with that. I, I, w- I would invite you to join in. A company of people that embrace the desires of the Father and carry them like a baby. Is your heart a good womb for carrying the purposes and the desires of God to develop? You know, that takes time. It takes time. It takes persistence. God wants to do so many things. And one of the primary ways, yeah, he can do things sovereignly, of course. He's almighty. I love what Nebuchadnezzar said. This is the only 
part of Scripture where an unbeliever has a place in Scripture where what they said was actually true about God. He's the sovereign of the universe. He does whatever he wills, and no one can say to him, why have you done that? Amen. He's sovereign, but for the most part, God accomplishes his purposes with the partnership of his people. And the partnership includes, first of all, our heart connection to him and carrying the desires and the burnings and the griefs that he carries. We connect with that, and that hurts. It hurts, and it's okay that it hurts because Christianity isn't about us being comfortable It's about us being saved and the people of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation shining forth the light. And it's okay if it hurts because our life is just a vapor anyway and it's going to be done and then we're going to be able to enjoy all the stuff that we can't even imagine. It's okay. I'm not saying every day's misery. It's not. There's a divine paradox. You know, Paul put it well. We're always crushed, but we're never overcome. We're always oppressed, but we're never not joyful. Because there's something that works inside of us that is greater than that. I want, I want to sign you up to be a carrier of the desires and the hunger of God for what He desires. Ephesians 5.18 Don't be drunk with wine. That's wasting your life. Be filled continuously. Be being filled with the Spirit. Continuously being filled with the Spirit over and over again. You see it in the book of Acts. There's at least five times where people that were already filled, it's kind of like COVID, right? You you, you can keep getting it. They, They were filled. And then they got filled again. And then in the moment of their need, they got filled again. And the, the, the key is they're filled in Acts chapter 2. And then they get threatened by the Sanhedrin. If you teach or preach in that name, we're going to come down hard on you. We're going to put you in prison. We'll, we'll kill you. And they cried out to the Lord. And at the end of that venting, you see what they did? They vented in that prayer meeting to the Lord in a good way. Not accusing him, but saying, God, in the name of your holy son, Jesus, heal the sick. Raise the dead. Show your right arm as powerful because we're not going to stop preaching. And when they finished praying, what happened? The place that they were gathered was shaken. The place. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Over and over again. Peter's filled again in chapter 4. Stephen's filled again in chapter 7. Paul's filled again in chapter 13, and then he comes across Elamus, the sorcerer. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, You who always do wickedness and unrighteousness, will you not cease to pervert the ways of the Lord? From this moment on, you're going to be blind. That was the Lord? Yeah, that was the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We need greater fullness. Please tell me that you're not content to say that you're a spirit-filled Christian because you prayed in tongues once. Please tell me that you don't say that. 
It's constant renewals of his fullness. I love this quote by Smith Wigglesworth. There must come up from us a cry that cannot be satisfied with anything but God. That is what John Lake called the God cry. That's a real thing. Lord, put in us the God cry. Put in us the God cry. We're, we're not called just to be nice people. It's good that we're nice. But we're not, we're not just called to be nice people. We're not just called to be friendly people. That's part of what we do because the fruit of the Spirit works in us. But we're called to be people who are actually filled with the living God. And he comes out through us. I, I know, I know, I know we talk about things so much sometimes that we think we're doing them. We really do. That's a real thing. We talk about all this stuff and we think that since we talk about it, we actually are living that way. And I, I just want to tell you kindly, I'm not blaming anybody. I, I look in the mirror every day and I say, God, fullness. I have a burning, longing hunger in my heart for fullness in the church of Jesus Christ. I have a gnawing, painful longing that grips my soul every day of my life. It's really true. For God's purposes to be fully expressed. I can't tell you. But I believe that that hunger was put there by the Lord. And because of that, I believe that there is coming the fulfillment of what he said and of what he desires. I do. And I believe that you're part of that. And I believe that you're part of that process. And I believe that you have longings in your heart that the Lord has put inside of you. And some of you have stuffed them down for so long that you become numb to those longings and maybe some of that's going to get reawakened today. I hope it does. Even if it hurts, I hope it does. I hope the desires that are deep inside of you that the Lord has put inside of you get awakened again. Get a voice again before the presence of the Lord and vent the desires that He's put inside of you. God, come! It's okay. We're Pentecostal here. It's okay if you do that down here. It really is. It doesn't unnerve us. Daniel, this is, this is a beautiful picture. I want to show you the process in a little more details. If you turn to Daniel chapter 9, this is God's ways. This is how he gets his purposes very often. He puts his desires inside of his people. And then he lets them be the womb that nurtures those desires. Daniel chapter 9. We're going to read a little bit of scripture here. I want to show you the, let me tell you what the four points in the process are, okay? Everybody ready? I'm going to tell you the four points and then I'm going to point them out as we get there. Point number one, God plants his desires in us. Point number two. 
we set our face to seek God about it. We take that desire before the presence of the Lord and we make it a serious project. That's the thing about hunger is that you can't just dismiss it and go, oh, stop being hungry. You can't do that because it gnaws at your belly and you have to do something with it. And the Lord says, set your face to seek me about it. Point number three, we feel the ache and the grief of our lack. This is the hardest part to endure, but we feel the grief of it. I know we want to be happy. We've done a great disservice to the people of God, in my view, in my opinion. You can take it for what it's worth. I feel like we've done a great disservice to the people of God by making it be so that when we gather together, everything has to be chipper and happy and, you know, that kind of thing. I'm good with being happy. I'm mostly a happy person. I'm not really a depressed person. I mean, you can ask my wife. I'm not a, down, I'm not a Debbie Downer. I'm not, I don't see the dark side of everything. Like, I, that's not my personality. But, but there's something inside of me that, look, I don't want to paper over and pretend that everything is the way that it's supposed to be. And so it's really okay if we're not always happy and chipper and everything, that, that's not the goal of life. The goal is that Jesus is rightly glorified and that his purposes come to pass in the earth because he is the sovereign king who has taken the scroll and opened the seals. He is the one who owns the earth and all that is in it. And every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation belongs to him. And right now, they're not belonging to him. And it's not okay. And we're part of the process of helping to birth God's purposes. So number three is to feel the ache and the grief. And then number four, it's really simple. God responds. He responds to that. You'll see that in Daniel. I won't go to Nehemiah. It's exactly the same thing there. You can follow it. Nehemiah chapter one and two, you'll see it. God puts his desire. So here, let's go through this, Daniel. Chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel. So where, where's Daniel now? He's in captivity in Babylon, right? He's been there for a long time. I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel is in his secret place with the Lord. He's reading the desires of God. He's breathing them in. He's reading the prophecy of Jeremiah. And in the prophecy of Jeremiah, of course, Jeremiah's whole ministry was prophesying, you're going to go into captivity because of all of your idolatry. So no use resisting it. The more you resist, the worse it's going to be for you. Uh, but in 70 years, the Lord's going to turn the captivity and return you. And Daniel's reading the word of the Lord from Jeremiah, and he's going, it's been 70 years. It's been 70 years. Lord, you said in 70 years you were going to turn the captivity. Look at us. We're still in Babylon. Here we're in captivity to these pagan idol worshipers. That's not okay. This is not okay. What is going on? So, verse 3, which is point number 2. I gave my attention 
literally, there my margin of my Bible says, literally set my face. I set my face to the Lord to seek Him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. There is a desperation that comes when the desire of God comes where we have to respond in a way that is proportionate to the need, right? Saying, God, I'm not, this is not okay. This is what you said and you want. And so what's the, where's the disconnect? Like, he begins to cry out. He figures out there's, there's some loose ends probably. And verses 4 through 19 is all about the ache and the groan, right? What did Paul say in Romans 8? The whole creation groans. The Holy Spirit groans. And the children of God groan. The Holy Spirit groans with us. Because He wants to have the full manifestation of the sons of God, which is only going to fully come when Jesus comes. But there's a groan that we pick up from the Holy Spirit that all creation is groaning. It wasn't created to be under the curse. And God's desire for His people to rise up and to be shown fully as the glorious children of God. We groan with that groan. So often i found in my own life the things where I felt stuck, the answer was that I had to join in with the groan of the Holy Spirit to actually bring things forth. You know, if you've ever been at a, a birth or heard about it sometimes, there's, there's a lot of groaning that goes on there. I, I definitely remember that. I was, I, all of our children were born at a birthing center, and some of the labors were harder than others, for sure. I remember doing the all-nighters and walking in the living room there, and my wife just hanging on my shoulders. Oh! You know, with our son Landon, he, he was big. My wife's not big. But he was over nine pounds, so it was big for her. The midwife was like, <laughs> he said, honey, you did good. But she's telling me, baby, I don't think I can do this anymore. I'm like, ah, you got to do it, honey. You can do it. There's a groaning with birthing and the desires that God puts inside of us. Sometimes they have to be groaned out. I, I know this isn't the, the happy, happy, happy that we kind of have become accustomed to, but that has actually made us weak in the body of Christ. It doesn't make us healthy. If we can't travail, if we can't pray, if we can't hurt, if we can't cry, if we can't fast, if we can't seek God and set our face to seek God, Lord, I set my face. That means there's nothing else on my radar right now. This is the most important thing. That's what hunger does. You ever been really hungry where you felt like you were going to vomit, you were so hungry, or you were going to pass out, or you got a bad headache? You're not thinking about, I wonder what's on TV tonight. You're like, what's in the fridge? I'm starving. I've got to eat. That's what it means to set your face. So I'm telling you the purposes of God for your life, like this is part of the process that the Lord calls you into because you are, you are his surrogate 
you're bearing the child of his desires in your heart. And the worst possible thing to do is to stuff those down and to abort God's purposes for you. It's the worst thing you can do because you have a faulty theology that says that God wants you to always be happy, chipper, rah, rah, rah. That's not true. Again, put in the disclaimer, my life is mostly happy. I'm mostly a happy person. I really am. But there are things that are blood-earnest, serious, that have eternity in them. And God doesn't want us to, to be flippant with those things. They're precious and they matter. This is life. We're talking about life. We need to partner with him. So here's Daniel. I prayed to the Lord, verse 4. My God, and confessed and said, Alas, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness is for those who love him and keep his commandments. Lord, I know that's who you are, but what's the disconnect? We have sinned. We've committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. This is brutal honesty. And it's super refreshing. Can, can I tell you that God doesn't believe your image? Can I tell you that God doesn't believe your Facebook profile? He wants a contrite heart. He won't despise a broken spirit. Right? If we could get honest with the Lord and even with each other, it's a game changer. It's a game changer. So Daniel's telling it like it is. We deserve where we are, no doubt. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. So I won't read the rest of that prayer, but I'll skip down to verse 19. You can read it. It's all powerful. He goes on and on confessing the sins of his nation. But I want you to notice something that he does. Daniel Nehemiah does the same thing, connects himself with his own people. He doesn't go, God, they're a bunch of carnal losers. If they had the spirituality that I had, they wouldn't be in this position. I tried to tell them, but they wouldn't. No, it was none of that. It's like, God, us. This is us. This is, this is us. I'm part of this mess. God, forgive me. You see, he identified with his people and with the bondage and with the lack that was there. So it's always a mistake for us in the body of Christ, if we're praying for God to breathe life and pour out His Spirit and to revive and to do all kinds of things, it's always a fail for us to point and go, oh yeah, there are a bunch of carnal losers out there in the seeker-friendly church and that's the problem. No, it's not. I'm part of the problem. 
I need to own that on whatever level I am and identify with the people of God and say, God, we're in a mess. This is not okay. And we cry out to you for you to bring your purposes for your people and in your church. We're the spirit-filled church, but so much of our existence is like the church in Sardis where Jesus said, the Lord Jesus who gave his life for those believers at Sardis said to them, you have a name that you're alive. You put it on the billboards and all your conferences. Fire! But you're dead. You're still full of bondage, isn't it? Jesus isn't a condemner. Jesus has the right to speak truth to the church because he gave his life for it. And if we can connect rightly to the heart of God and to his desires, it will be a game changer. If we can be honest enough with our own lives, I'm not talking about self-castigation where you just beat yourself over the head. That, that's never a win. But taking the stuff that you see in the mirror before the Lord earnestly and letting him transform you. That's what I'm talking about. It's easy to have all the substitutes for actual real relationship and real transformation by the Holy Spirit and real fullness of the Holy Spirit. We have What substitutes do we have? Well, we go to church and we dance around and I'm, I'm for that. I love it. I really do. But that's not a substitute for doing deep business with the Lord about what's real. And take your Facebook image and just delete it. And go, just put a big stamp across that false, phony, fake. It's not real. That kind of honest heart, the Lord will never despise. He gives more abundant grace to the humble. If we're fixed on our image, that's pride. We want people to think something about us that isn't actually true which is lying. If we could get past the image thing, our culture is just full of it. And can I tell you, it nauseates the Lord. You say, I'm rich. I'm full. I have need of nothing. And Jesus saying to the church that he died for in Laodicea, you don't know. You've convinced yourself of your Facebook following image that this is who you really are, but you don't know that you're miserable, wretched, naked, blind, and poor. How can you not know that? That's the wondering of the Son of God. But I advise you, this is the beauty of the Lord Jesus and his great heart. Buy from me gold. I'll still sell it to you. Come and get white garments from me. Come and get eye salve so that you can see. I'll heal you. But the first thing that has to go is the desire 
to be loved, admired, and celebrated by men. John Lake, again, another one of my heroes in the faith. I believe it's true from my study that he had the greatest healing ministry since the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles in in the history of the church. 100,000 documented healings by doctors. The most amazing miracles you can imagine where cancerous tumors the size of basketballs instantly vanish. I mean, that kind of stuff. Crazy. Do, do you know how that happened? Can I tell you it was the same process? I want to read you from Lake's own words how the healing ministry came to him. It wasn't that he went to a conference and somebody said, here, I'll give you my mantle. It wasn't that. Or if you pay me 150 bucks, then I'll give you two mantles. Come on. I'm not trying to be critical, but some things need to be mocked because they're absolutely asinine. Here's Lake's story of his, of how healing came to his life. I lived in a family, Lake says, which for 32 years was never without an invalid in the home. Before I was 24 years of age, we had buried four brothers and four sisters, and four other members of the family were dying, hopeless, helpless invalids. I set up my own home, married a beautiful woman, and our first son was born. In only a short time, I saw the same devilish train of sickness that had followed my father's family had come into mine. My wife became an invalid. My son was a sickly child. Out of it all, one thing developed in my nature, a cry. For deliverance. My soul cried to God for deliverance. I knew nothing about the subject of divine healing, but my heart was crying for deliverance. My soul had come to the place where I had given up depending on man. My father had spent a fortune on the family to no avail. I finally got to that place where my supreme heart cry was for deliverance. Tears were shed for deliverance for three years before the healing of God came to us. I could hear the groans and the cries, the wretchedness and the sobs, and feel my family's desperation. My heart cried, my soul sobbed, my spirit wept tears. But one thing matured in my heart, a real hunger. God used John Lake. You should read some of his writings. Read read his book about him going to Africa and the things that happened there. He literally, he, him and his guys, they shook the whole country. He went into the president's office and prophesied to him, and you know, God showed up in a miraculous way. I mean, it's powerful stuff. But, but the healings that followed his ministry were nothing short of phenomenal. Okay, well, let's make, a, let's make a group and dance around John like he's the hero. No, 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 you missed the point. The point is, how did that happen? How did the purpose of God for his life actually come to fruition? It wasn't that I read the, the John, book, John Lake books. It was that the hunger that God planted inside of him was cultivated And it groaned and he wept and he grieved and he sobbed and he watched this train of sickness ravage his family for so many years. And finally that hunger rose up so big and God came on the scene with the kingdom of God. Boom! That's enough. 
And that spread out from his life. And literally, the thing I love about Lake is that he had doctors all the time on the scene whenever he would pray for people. Like, we're not going to play, you know, we're not going to play the game so we can have something for the newsletter. Like, this is real. Check them out. That's the thing. Okay, now we're going to pray. No. He, he's the one. When he was in Africa and he was helping when the bubonic plague was spreading through Africa, masses of people were dying. And Lake was out there helping to bury the dead who were just laying like cordwood all over the place in the fields. He's helping bury the dead. And so the government workers come in, and they're like, man, what are you using to protect yourself from the plague? He goes, I use the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which makes me free from the law of sin. He said, now, if you'll take that foam that's on their mouth, that black foam, so I got the name Black Plague, because when people would die, there would be a black foam that would form on their mouth. He said, I'll wipe some of that off from one of these corpses and put it on my hand. He said, but first you put it under the microscope and look at it, and you'll see that there's living bacteria that are just teeming everywhere in that. And when I put it in my hand and you put it under the bacteria, it'll all be dead. And that's exactly what they did. And they're going, oh, my goodness, what is this? He goes, it's Jesus. He's real. He's not pretend. What caused that? What caused him to carry that authority? Well, why don't we just go out and do that? Because he had an authority that was birthed in his heart from the hunger that gnawed at his gut for years until God finally broke through and he birthed that baby and it came forth and blessed hundreds of thousands of people. Our problem is we have to try to navigate this. I live in the same America that you do. We have comfort, entertainment, Everywhere that we can default to. And it's hard to keep an edge on that hunger and let it come to full fruition because we just want the pain to go away, right? We just want it to go away. God, I don't want to carry that in my gut. I don't want that anymore. The Holy Spirit's work in our life in Scripture is compared to a fire. You know that many times. Paul says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift that has been given to you. Fan it. Blow on it. Keep blowing on it. Get it hotter and hotter. God started the fire, but we're responsible to tend it. The problem is we keep shoveling dirt and all kinds of junk on it, and then it can't thrive. We go, God, I don't want my fire. Stop shoveling dirt on it. Stop pouring water on it. I'll let you figure out what those things are. You should figure out what those things are. You should figure out in your life what things quench your spiritual desire, and you should cut them off. You should be honest enough to go, I can't watch five hours of TV a night and be an on-fire Christian. You should, you should be honest enough to do that. I'm not telling you what to do. Yeah, that's legalism, brother. No, that's just being honest. Why do fires go out? And I'm going to... Al, if you could come up. There's two reasons why fires go out. 
They can be burning bright and blazing. Here's the two reasons. Neglect. And the second one is suffocation. When you put a fire out and you're on a campsite, you're supposed to shovel dirt on top of it to suffocate it so it can't spread. It's interesting that Jesus said in the parable of the soils, sometimes we call it the parable of the sower, the soil that was sown among the thorns are those whom the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things choke it, and it never produces fruit. Can I ask us to examine our hearts and our life? I mean, do you want to be a carrier of the purposes of God? I know that there are a number of people in this room where there's been strong desires that the Lord has planted in your heart and you have stuffed them, you become disappointed, you become impatient with the process and you decide this isn't worth it. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm gonna live a happy life. I'm just gonna be a happy person. I'm gonna stuff that down. I'm gonna try to love Jesus, but I'm not gonna, like, can I tell you that the Lord wants to reignite that in you and, and to revisit with you the desires that he's placed inside of you because it is a stewardship. The desires that Jesus places in our hearts as his people are a stewardship that we're supposed to nurture and develop and let them grow and come to fruition because he's wanting fruitfulness to come from those desires that he's planted inside of us. He wants us to say yes again to the process. I can tell you, it's really not that hard to pray when desire is gnawing at your belly. It's when we're stinking comfortable and carnal and we're living a fleshly life that is all about our immediate comfort that we have a hard time praying. When there's desire that's burning inside of you, you go, God, the cry comes out automatically. You don't have to work it out. pray and then I want to invite you to come. Come up front. You don't have to. It's not some big pull but if, if there's desires inside of you that you've stuffed down and you've quenched, you need to vent those to the Lord. You need to reignite those and you need to re-up your yes to the Lord as far as birthing the purposes that he's put inside of you. And if there's areas where you need to make adjustments in your heart Listen, I'm your fellow traveler. I get it. I totally get it. I love comfort and sleep and good food just as much as you do. Maybe more. Now that I'm on this restricted diet, I dream about mac and cheese. <clears throat> Let's pray. I want you to re-engage with the Lord. I want you to be part of the process of birthing what the Lord wants to do, not just in your life, but in this place. It's part of heart of the Father. You cannot say anymore in your heart, well, it's okay, Sister Marie will pray, or Sister Lisa will pray. No, <clears throat> because they don't have the desires inside of them that are in you. The Lord specifically put those desires inside of you. You have to be the one that births them. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. 
we ask for you to reignite in us, to remind us of the desires that you have placed inside of us. Lord, I pray that you would remove the confusion of competing desires. Lord, would you, would you heal us of our obsession with the trivial in this culture? Would you heal us of our obsession with comfort and not being willing to hurt and to birth the purposes of God in our lives and for this place and for this nation and this world? Lord, I pray that you would awaken every heart, that you would awaken every heart, every dull and dead place that's inside of us. God, would you come by your mercy and would you reignite and would you reawaken in us the things that you want to burn? Jesus, we just want to give you what you want. We just want to give you what you're worthy of. We just want your purposes to come to pass in their fullness. We just want for your presence and your fame and your glory to fill the earth. We want you to be preeminent. Would you come and help us? Lord, would you have mercy upon our hearts where we've stuffed it? Would you release those things and cause them to rise up again? Help us re-engage, Lord.